First Timothy chapter one. Let's start reading at verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of our God and Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're told in Scripture that all Scripture, this introduction included, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that men and women of God may be complete, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work that is in front of us. So let's pray and ask God to do that right here among us this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, not a book. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to your people. We thank you that, Lord, we can open this Bible and know your word. Know, thus says the Lord. You are the Lord. You are the King. You are the Creator. You are worthy of all. You are the Most High God. And because we are your creatures, your creation, we should hear your word and bow down before it. And so, Lord, I pray this morning first for soft, humble hearts that hear that understand, that receive, and believe, and obey, and trust. Lord, we pray that you would work among us. Father, I pray for our members that were, are, are not here this morning for a number of reasons. Some are traveling. Give them travel mercies, and may your grace meet them where they are. Uh, Father, we pray for our members who are fighting sickness, illness. Um, Lord, we think of Dot Cole. Lord, we, it, it appears that you are bringing her home soon. And so, Father, I, I want to just rejoice in the song we just sang. You hold your people fast. Because you love us. You love us. You love your people. You cling to your people. You hold fast to your people. And I pray that for Miss Dot. Hold, hold her fast. And in your good timing, bring her home to you. We pray that for all of us. In your good timing, bring us home. As Jesus said, he goes to prepare a place for us. And if it were not so, he would not have told us. So, Father, we look forward to the day where we see you, holy, holy, holy God, face to face. And by seeing you, we will become like you. Lord, we do recognize our ability, our proneness to wander as we sang. So Lord, draw us back this morning. Through your word and through your people, do a good work. In Christ's name, amen. First Timothy. We just read the introduction. You see it's written by Paul to Timothy, probably somewhere around 63 to 65 A.D., It's a letter that's best described as Paul telling Timothy, this young church leader, this young shepherd pastor of the church in Ephesus, how the church is to be structured, what the church is meant to be. Paul's telling Timothy, look, Jesus is going to do what he said he's going to do. Jesus will build his church. He said he would and he will 
And yet, he's telling Timothy what it is that he's supposed to teach, what he's supposed to value, what he's supposed to proclaim, how the church is to be governed, what pastors are to be and to do, what deacons are to be and to do, how we're supposed to interact with each other, how we're supposed to watch out for each other, how we're supposed to watch out of each other, that there are going to be false Christians that arise in his church, and they must be noticed and called out and dealt with, that this is a call to spiritual war. He says, this is going to cost you fighting the fight of faith, that that's what it's going to take. And yet, as we're doing all these things, remember, Christ is going to do what Christ said he would do, that he is faithful because that's who he is. So 1 Timothy for us is going to be fun. I'm going to enjoy it. And yet, it's going to call us to examine ourselves, to examine our own church, to examine what Christ has called us to be. Make no mistake, we are not our church. We are his church. And so it's his call who we are to be and how we are to function together. And whatever it is he's going to call us to, guess what? We're going to seek to obey. We're going to seek to be conformed to that. Why? Because he is God and we are not. Now, just like in any movie, in any book, in any story, the best thing we can do is really start with the characters. We need to know who they are. So that's where I want us to begin today. Who is Paul? Who is Timothy? And what has brought us to this point? So these are your loose points here if you want them. Who is Paul? Who is Timothy? And what has brought us to this point? Now, who is Paul? Now, if we want to get an understanding of who this man is who's writing the letter, where would we need to turn in the Bible to find it? The book of Acts. We need to go back to his story. Let's see what's happening. So in the book of Acts, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just like we talked about last week, we see Jesus visibly seen, visibly, well, heard, audibly heard by, the, by, by hundreds of people over the course of 40 days. And he tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem, to not leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit of God comes down on them in power and indwells his people. That this is the fulfillment of a promise we see in the Old Testament. That in Ezekiel 37, starting at verse 13, God raises the valley of dry bones. If you've never read that story, Look in your Bible, find the page for Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, turn to chapter 37 and read it. Powerful story. And yet in that story, a prophecy comes of what God is going to do one day. And this is what he says. You shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I'm going to do it. We come to Acts chapter 2, and this is where we see the Holy Spirit comes down onto his people, and he indwells them, and they begin moving mightily. So you've got guys preaching sermons to thousands, and thousands of people are being saved. And yet, while the Lord is at work in and through his people, Satan is at work also in and through his people. 
So the Lord is doing miracles through Stephen one day. And you have men rise up against Stephen and they come to him and they arrest him and they bring him before the high priest and they start accusing him of using blasphemy, of taking upon himself words that are counter to God's character and God's word. And so they bring these charges against him and Stephen, in response to it, he just starts preaching. He starts giving this sermon as to what God is doing among the people that day. And they get so mad at this sermon that they cover their ears and enraged, they rush at Stephen, they bind him, they take him outside of the city, and they stone him to death right there. And in that chapter, in verse 57, we read that the witnesses, the people that were throwing the rocks, they take their outer garments off and they lay them at the feet of a man named Saul. And then we go from that and in chapter 8, verse 1, it says that Saul approved of his execution. That in some form, Saul had some sort of ability and power and authority to say, this is what we need to do. This man needs to die. And we're told that Saul is zealous for this. He's zealous to protect the traditions that he's always known. And so from that day forward, under the eye and the hand of Saul, a great persecution breaks out against the church. So notice, the Holy Spirit comes... God is moving in power, and then through Saul, a great persecution breaks out against the church. And so the, the church doesn't split. They actually move to different regions, to different parts of the city and of the nation, and they continue the work that they've been doing. So God used this man, Saul, to bring about the gospel going, the good news of Jesus, going to places that it had not yet been. The church has been scattered. And then we're told that Saul was ravaging the church, that he was entering house after house, because at that time, where did churches meet? In houses. There was, he was entering house after house, just like they still do in China these days. They find believers, they drag off men and women, and they commit them to prison. Well, in chapter 9, Saul says this isn't enough. So he goes to the high priest and he gets letters to go to Damascus and continue the work there that he's been doing in Jerusalem so that if he can find any belonging to the way, the way that follows Jesus either man or woman, he can bind them, he can bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. And yet you probably know this story. On the way to Damascus, this man named Saul is, is going there to bring further persecution upon the church. And what happens? A bright light shines all around him. He falls to the ground and he hears a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? I don't even know who you are. And the voice says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And when Saul opens up his eyes, they don't work anymore. That the light has blinded him and he's told to rise up, go into Damascus, and he will be told what to do. And so he does that. He's led into the city and he waits there for three days and we're told that he eats or drinks nothing. It's this, this picture kind of of a fast. 
that whatever he was doing, wherever he was going, something has just kind of smacked him in the face, and there is some repentant fasting going on here. I will neither eat nor drink until some resolution comes. Well, during those three days, God visits a man named Ananias and tells him to go to a certain house where he will find a man named Saul of Tarsus. Do you remember Ananias' answer? This is awesome. Ananias is like, well, God, I don't know if you know this, but Saul's a bad guy. He does bad things. And God says, yeah, I know I'm God. I know this. I know how this works. And he says, I still want you to go because Saul is my chosen instrument. I have chosen to redeem him. And not just that, I'm putting him into ministry. Saul is zealous. Absolutely. And I'm going to put him to use for my deeds, for my work, for my gospel. And so Ananias comes to Saul and he says to him, Brother Saul, who do Hulk Hogan calls everybody brother. Mike Perkerson calls everybody cuz. We're all family here, right? Who do Christians call brother? Other Christians. You see what Ananias is saying? Brother Saul, you were on the outside, but now you're one of us. You were out there, a rebel, but now you've been redeemed. So Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Saul continues to go into the synagogue. He continues to go around to the synagogues, but something massive has changed. Now he goes in and he's still proclaiming and he's still speaking up, but this time he's saying what? Jesus is the Son of God. And it's so powerful and it's such a fundamental change that the Jews now begin plotting to kill him that who was their number one ally, their leader, the, the, the king of this persecution is now the object of the persecution. Why? Because he has been changed so dramatically. You may have heard this term because I started this, and if you're not used to this, this may have been confusing. I said, let's talk about Paul, and then I started telling the story about a guy named Saul. What's up with that? Is it a misspeak? No. You may have heard it said this. Saul was an enemy of God who was so fundamentally changed that he was given a new name. It may preach, but it ain't right. In those days, Jews had their Jewish name, and under Roman authority, they had their Greek name. You saw this often, right? This person here also called this. Saul was his Jewish name, and guess what his Greek name was? Paul. And you see the Bible make the switch from calling him Saul to Paul, not when he's converted, but when he begins ministering to a primarily Gentile audience. When he leaves this Jewish region and starts ministering, becoming this apostle to the Gentiles, then there is such a change in there because the Bible is saying, look, he's in a Gentile region, he's in a Greek region, we're going to call him by his Greek name. And that's what the Bible's doing there. So whenever you see Saul in the New Testament and Paul, it's talking about the same person, right? Okay, 
So God uses Saul to bring about persecution. And he uses him to bring about the gospel because of this persecution, not just being in Jerusalem, but be spreading out in the regions all around. But now God has radically transformed this rebel into the means by which the gospel goes, not simply to Jewish regions, but to the Gentiles. God takes this man and says, I'm making him the apostle to the Gentiles. He's going to go all out and he's going to share the good news of Jesus Christ outside of the Jewish reign and into Roman and Greek and all these different areas there. Paul ends up writing more of the New Testament than anyone, number of book-wise. He ends up sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus before kings. Think about his story. What would we call this guy? He's a terrorist. Essentially, that's who he is. He fights for his religion, and anybody who disagrees with him, he's happy to put them to death, to stone them right there. That's who he was. And yet when he saw Jesus, he put his faith in him. He was saved and was made a completely new creature in Christ, that the old is gone and the new has come, that this is what happens when we trust in Jesus. We become new creations. We become sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ. Let me bring this home. Some of you, you hate your story. You hate your background. You hate your struggles. You hate your history. You despise it. You're ashamed of it. You feel like you even come in this room today and there's just all this condemnation and shame. If only these people knew who I used to be. Don't miss how God uses Paul. You remember a few weeks ago, we were in David and Goliath, and we made the same point. God uses the small, the weak, those with broken pasts, those who seemingly have nothing to give and are nothing. Why? Because your weakness shows his strength. Your failures show his mercy. Your struggles show his grace. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, kintsugi pottery. You ever heard of it? It's um, Japanese, obviously. But kintsugi pottery is when they will take pottery that has been broken. They'll take these broken vessels and they put them back together. What they don't do is take these broken vessels that, let's say, are made of clay and repair them with clay. Instead, what they do is this. Then when something breaks or when something is cracked and it needs to be fixed, they'll take that clay and they'll fill it with gold or with silver. And so you'll see a bowl that has these precious metals running all through the cracks, all through the brokenness. This is what God does in us. That in your brokenness and in your past and your struggles and your temptations and your shame, not only does he wipe it away with the blood of Christ, he actually uses all of that to make you who he wants to be. 
that in large part, a huge part of your value, your ministerial value, your ability to minister and care for others comes not because you have never been broken, but because you were broken. And this pottery, the value comes because it was cracked and messed up. It's the same with us. That God uses broken vessels to show his perfection. He uses fallen vessels to show his grace. And that that's what the, the church is to be for the world around us. Listen, you don't have to walk in shame and condemnation and guilt. Paul knows this. That's why he says in this introduction, grace and mercy and peace are yours in abundance in Christ Jesus. So brother, sister, Christian trusting in Christ, let that go. Cast off the condemnation. There is none of that anymore. Put away your shame. Jesus carried that for you and relish in the fact that God through Christ can take someone like you and use you in mighty ways for his glory. As Paul's ministering to these Gentile territories, Jews that hate him begin following him around. It's like having a bunch of roadies, except these roadies want to kill you. That's what Paul has. So everywhere he goes, Jews follow him around and they're stirring up riots against him and violence against him. Eventually, Paul makes his way towards Derby and Delystra, these two neighboring towns. Now remember, this is how the gospel gets to Gentile regions. Paul's going around. Barnabas is going with him. They're ministering in all these places and telling them about Jesus, the Christ. Well, they arrive in Lystra. And bad things happen again. In chapter 14, Paul and his traveling companion Barnabas, they get, they get there and they start preaching. Just like they always did, they're preaching. They're telling about who Jesus is and what he's done. And the Bible focuses on one man where it looks down at a crippled man and it says that while they were standing there preaching, a man who was lame from birth, who had never been able to walk, is watching them. And Paul looks at him and he sees that he has faith to be healed. And so Paul looks at him and says, you, get up. And immediately this crippled man, lame from birth, stands up and he starts walking around. And the city of, of Lystra goes nuts. They see it and they say, the gods have come down. And then they start bringing animals to Paul and to Barnabas because they're going to sacrifice animals to them, worshiping them, not God. They call uh, Barnabas Zeus and they call Paul Hermes. So if you've ever done seminary classes or heard the word hermeneutics, that's where it comes from. Hermes, the, this uh, interpretation, the speaker, because he was the main speaker. He's called Hermes. And, the, and then Paul and Barnabas, they have to tear their clothes. They rend their garments. And they're barely able to keep this city from sacrificing animals to them, believing that the gods have come down. Brothers and sisters, never believe your own hype. Because the very next day, Jews show up and they say, uh, those guys aren't gods at all. And then the people of Lystra say, okay, we should kill them. So it switches in 24 hours from the gods have come to, hey, let's throw rocks at these guys. And so that's what they do. 
They take Paul, they drag him out of the city, they throw him on the ground, and then they start casting stones on him until they think he's actually dead. They actually think he's dead. That's how many rocks they had cast on him, and that was the effect of it. They look at him and say, I don't even think he's breathing anymore. We're pretty sure he's dead. And so what do you do after you throw rocks on somebody and kill them? You just go back home. You go back to town, and that's what they do. But I love chapter 14, verse 20. Listen to this. It said, but when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up. I love that. But guys, you feel broken, crushed, bloodied, gathered disciples around you. Men and women who will remind you who God is, what he's done through Jesus, who will point you to truth, and then rise up. And he rises up, and he goes right back into the town that stoned him, and he begins preaching again. Do you think the people noticed? You think for a second they expected this guy to walk back in their town and keep doing what he was doing? You remember in our study of Jonah, we said that some people think that Jonah, from being in actually the stomach acid of the fish, I don't know if this is true or not, it's an interesting theory, that from being in the stomach acid of the fish, he would have been so bleached out in his skin that he would have looked different. You know, you, you catch a fish, you can barely get the smell off your hand. I assume being in a fish for three days, that when he walked into Nineveh, you know that that fish-worshiping city saw, they smelled and thought, we should listen to this guy. Here's Paul. We thought he was dead. He's bleeding, he's bloodied, he's bruised, and he came back. Oswald Sanders told the story of an Indian missionary who walked all day to get to a city, walked uphill to get to the city to preach the gospel, and he was so tired that he wanted to take a nap, but he said, no, I feel like the Lord's calling me to go on in. I'm going to preach the gospel to these people, and so that's what he did. He goes into this town, and he preaches the gospel to them, and they do not listen at all. They respond in violence to him. They run him out of town. And he says, ah, I shouldn't even be here. And so he walks out of the town. He lays down and he just falls asleep right there outside of the city. Well, a few hours later, he wakes up and he's surrounded by the inhabitants of the town. And the chief of the tribe is just looking down on him. And he said, surely I thought I was dead. Surely I didn't think I was going to get out of this. And the chief looks at him and says, we see your feet. We see that they are bloodied. We see that they are mangled. Clearly, you have something important to tell us. Come in, and we will listen. Look, the world will notice how you suffer. Jesus said there will be suffering. I don't know if you've noticed but on this earth there will be suffering and they will take notice of whether or not you suffer differently than them. They will notice whether this talk of a sovereign God or of good promises or purposes or belief in an eternal rest and joy has any effect on you at all. Does it? Do you say it? Or do you believe it? And in that very town of Lystra, right there where that happened, 
where Paul was stoned and walked right back into that town and preached again. And that very town was a young man who probably watched and who probably listened, and his name was Timothy. He was the son of a Jewish mother named Eunice, a grandmother named Lois, and a Greek unbelieving father, a Greek father that didn't believe in Christ or in the Jewish scriptures at all. In 2 Timothy 1.5, we read this, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. So they were sincere believers, and no doubt they raised Timothy to know the scriptures. But Paul calls Timothy in this very intro, my true child in the faith, which means Timothy found Christ under Paul's ministry, that he was converted under the ministry of Paul. And so you've got this younger man, Timothy, who grows up under a mother and a grandmother who know the scriptures and who were pouring into him. Ladies, don't ever forget that you have a massive spiritual role in the lives of your children. Don't ever forget to teach them diligently the scriptures to model for them the life of a believer, not a perfect mom, not a perfect wife, but a mom who trusts in Christ, who prays for them. I don't know if you've ever read like these mighty men of God who God has used in churches and in revival for the last centuries. You know one thing that they always say? They attribute much of their salvation to the prayers of their mother. And their grandmother, there's a common theme throughout them all. So may this be true in how our daughters and our sons talk about the women in their lives. Even with an unbelieving father, Timothy had family pouring scripture into his life. We come to chapter 16 and we read that Paul came back to Derby and to Lystra and a disciple was there named Timothy that he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So Timothy has grown up. He's a faithful disciple of Christ, so much so that the people around him look at him and they know that's who he is. And so Paul wants Timothy to go on these missionary journeys with him. And so from now on in Acts, you see Paul and Timothy going these places and ministering to others. Now, you may be wondering, how old is Timothy? Because it does say, let no one despise you for your youth. Well, how youth was he? Was he a teenager? I mean, not exactly. I, I'm 44, and whenever I meet a 41-year-old, I'm like, man, you're just a kid. You've experienced so little life. And don't think for a second that I don't see how you older people look at me when I'm talking about how my knees and my back hurt. You look at me, you're like, just wait. You ain't even started to hurt. You're just a kid. So what's Paul saying here? Probably more than likely, Timothy was about 20 when he was converted, right around there. And by the time of this letter, he's probably 35 to 40. So he's a younger believer, but not a youth by any stretch. And so what we have is Paul taking this Timothy. This older seasoned saint taking this younger saint under his wings and they go and they minister together. Even now, by this letter, Paul's actually discipling Timothy and what he's supposed to be as a pastor. Notice how it works. Timothy's early life, mother and grandmother are pouring scriptures into him. 
They would have taken them to synagogue. They would have taken them to hear the word and to, 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 um, to, to take Passover and the meals and celebrate all of that together. He would have been part of the covenant community. And if what Paul says is true, which we should believe it is, then what, Paul, what Timothy saw in the church community was what he saw in his home community. That his mother and his grandmother were faithful in the, in the synagogue and they were faithful at home. And so we get there, and he's in his early 20s, and the Bible says he's a faithful brother. He's a faithful disciple of the Lord. Now, understand that this is getting rare. The conversation you always hear is that when youth leave their homes, what happens? They're falling away from the church. They're leaving the church. If you've seen the numbers, they don't look very encouraging at all. And I, I actually believe that some of the reasons are right here in this text. We, we've already mentioned a consistency, bye guys, between church and home. It's important. In a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, boys and girls who leave the church when they leave their home leave it because what they saw at home was different than what they saw at church. That they saw gospel in the Bible and they saw law at home. That they saw Jesus at church and they saw Pharisee at home. That can often be the case. It's important. But let's look at some other things. Let me, let me, let me ask you something. How many of you, when you were young, when you were growing up, when the preacher got up to preach, you left? I mean, think about that. Protestants have always held that the most important time for spiritual growth in the week is when the Bible is opened up before us and we read it together. About 30 years ago, we started sending the weakest of us out of the church while the most important spiritual part of the week started happening. Why? Why would we do that? We need to get back to this place where families worship and sit under the word of God together. Look, look, look. Love that guy taking his baby out. Take the babies as they're yelling out. Totally. Let's have a place for our youngest. But when children get to the age where they can sit under the preach word, guess what? They should. Like, this is not a condemnation. You've never heard these words from me. This is not even an anti-children's ministry. It's not at all. I love what our children are doing, and I have no doubt that your children are hearing the gospel in there. But there's something missing when the word is open, when we say, y'all get out of here, this is adult time. No, it's not. Clearly, we've talked about this one. I'm kind of tired of talking about this one. But about 30 years ago, you know what else we started doing? We started segregating churches based on musical preference. I don't know if you noticed that. Anybody heard that conversation? This is why I'm glad I have a mic and you don't. Some wanted new songs and some wanted old songs. Guess what? There's good new songs and there's good old songs. Guess what? There's also terrible new songs and terrible old songs. But you started seeing, and this was, we should have seen it. When we did that, older people said, I want him, so I'm going to go in there. And younger people said, I kind of like the drums. I want to go in there. And so what happened? Seasoned Christians went one way, 
And younger, newer believers went another way, and we totally dissected any ability they had to minister to one another. Then what happened? We started pulling the youth out of gatherings. I know tons of churches where the church building sits here where everybody gathers and the youth meet somewhere across town. That's a terrible idea. You may have land space issues, whatever. I'm not making a comment on that part. We put them in their own building away from us and we started giving them cool, loud, and entertaining as possible because that's just what they need, isn't it? So why would it surprise us when the youth leave our home and they leave the church when we've been teaching them to do it for 18 years anyways? We started separating them from the church from the moment they came out and we said, hey, keep going. We taught you how to do it. Am I ranting? No. But what I'm noticing is we need to get back to what the church always was. Older brothers and sisters and younger brothers and sisters, not simply worshiping together, but actually seeking the good of one another. The more mature coming alongside in discipleship to the less mature. Men pouring into younger men, teaching them to be fathers, husbands, workers, church members. Older women coming alongside the younger, teaching them to be mothers and wives and faithful in every duty that is before them. It's no accident that when the church started focusing on making converts rather than making disciples, all of this began. And when all of this began, we saw the weakening of the church. We just never put our finger on it. We saw faith that stopped being handed down from generation to generation. Did you hear the call to worship? One generation shall commend your works to another. Only if we're together. We saw the weakening of the church. We saw the faith that stopped being handed down and it just got assumed. Then it got neglected. Then it became forgotten. And children go out of our homes and they don't need church anymore because we've done a faithful job of making them uh, part ways with the church anyways. That's what we've done. So when they leave, we shouldn't be surprised. But one thing we can do is say, okay, we can talk about it, fine. What do we need to do? We need repentance. We need to return to what the church was called to be, men Listen, I need you to seek out Timothys to whom you can be a Paul. Men to whom you can guide in wisdom and in what you know and what the Lord has taught you. Women, we need the same thing from you. Coming alongside younger women and say, hey, I've walked this path before. Let me show you what I learned along the way. This is how the church has always grown and always matured, and always multiplied, and until we return to that, I think we're going to see a weak church in America, and a weak church is going to continue to buckle as society turns against us. It's coming. So what are we doing to make sure that when it comes, when that persecution comes, because it's coming, that we will stand firm? What do we do? We daily turn our eyes to the Christ who says, I'm going to build my church and even hell will not prevail against it. To the God who said, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. 
who gives strength to the weary, power to the weak, who is the sun and shield for his people. We study his word. We learn who he is and where we need to repent, we repent, knowing that as we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. We honor the Father. We trust the Son. We walk in the Spirit. I'll be honest, I've never been in a church that did it. I've never seen it. One that focused on the older coming along, I've never seen it. But I see it here. And I'd love to see it here. Because I have no idea how the Lord will use it. But can you imagine what he would do? That as we seek to be obedient, he will be faithful in his power in and through this church. The Lord is faithful. He will surely do it. So as God calls us to it, let's trust him in obedience. And let's respond to him in faith.